Hi guys, on today's show I have the privilege of talking to Tim Gabbert. Tim is a very well-known high-performance consultant from Gabbert Performance Solutions who works on a global scale supporting elite athletes, teams and performance organizations. Tim very generously gave up his time and in this episode you'll hear some absolute pearls of wisdom on athlete data collection, sports science and more. If you're enjoying the show, even in its infancy, then please, please subscribe at Inform Performance and you'll get the episodes as soon as they come out. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today and especially from the other side of the world. Uh, it's evening where I am, but good morning to you. Morning, Annie. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm over in Philadelphia, so the probably the exact opposite corner to you. Um just to begin with, lots of people will have already have heard of who you are and, and what your work's involved, but could you give us an outline of who you are and what your background is for the listeners who might be discovering you for the first time through this episode? Yeah, um, obviously my name's Tim Gabbard. I've, um, I've been involved in, in sport a long, long time, and that's, that's pretty much what I've built my, my career around is working in sport, working with athletes and coaches. Um, and at the moment, I... I run my own business where I consult to high-performance organisations. So whether it's sporting organisations, whether it's military, or whether it's um, whether it's kind of artistic organisations, circus and and dance, um, they're they're the kind of things we we work on at the moment. We're, we're basically any anything with a performance element to it, um, and we have a group of people who are trying to get better. Then we try and work with them to to help them achieve that goal. When you go and consult, are you only really working with them for the time you're there, or do you take the work home and kind of review it from afar as well? Uh, it, it varies, Andy. Some depends on on what the organisation wants. Um, you know, I'm, I think the really good organisations have us have us there as a um, you know they, they bring us back. Uh, we have, you know have longer term contracts with them, so there's some some organisations that we've been working with um, on a consistent basis for for multiple years, um, and and then other times other organisations have have smaller areas of interest, and and they could be just one off jobs. Sometimes they're in and out type jobs, and then other times it it requires a little bit more work, a little bit more thinking, and um, where I have to take the work away and spend a bit more time either analyzing data or just just thinking about the problem a little bit longer um you know there's there's often really smart people in in these organizations so you know it's not as though they haven't been thinking about the problem themselves so if 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 they haven't um solved it on their own it's it's not because because they they don't have the intelligence it's just that they've been thinking about it for a long time and they need another set of eyes on it so a lot of these a lot of these challenges that that we come across are not, um, you know, are not a not an easy fix. Some of the times they, they take a little bit of thinking time and a little bit of a little bit of collab. You know, they take collaboration with the people um, in in that environment to make it work. And um, you're obviously really well known for your work on on workload. When you go out to teams, is there other kind of parts of their strategy that you're working with them for? Yeah, you know, I guess um, workload is is one of those things that that I've been looking at for a long time, um, and I, and it's it's probably evolved a little bit in the last few years that it's it's become interesting again. It was always pretty interesting to me, but it's you know it's it's done a little bit more 
more of a cycle now and, and some more people have become interested in it. So it seems like it's a really new area to a lot of people. Um, you know, the reality is there's a lot of people that have been doing great work in, in that space for a long time. Um, you know, it's, and it's probably just a whole new bunch of people who have become aware of it and, and become interested in it. Um, but that's not, yeah, that's that's not the only thing um, that that I would go into an organisation for. Some sometimes workload is part of part of the issue, but it's it doesn't solve all or answer all questions that a that an organisation has. Um, you know, sometimes we're working with coaches on communication. Sometimes we're working with staff on collaboration. Sometimes we're working with um, coaches and and trainers on the way they they teach skill. Um, you know, all all athletes want their skills to hold up under the highest levels of pressure and and the highest levels of fatigue. So you know, we, we work in that area as well to make sure that the kind of um, activities that are being done in in training and practice actually um, are likely to hold up under when they really need to hold up when they and so that they just, they transfer and that they're retained. So you know, we do a lot of work in the skill acquisition space as well. And I'm sure you're constantly filled in um, questions and conversations about what tools or products teams should be implementing to monitor, you know, load or other aspects of performance. Um, have you kind of seen any interesting or particularly good examples of organisations in sport that communicate that data um, and insight into something meaningful for the players? Uh, yeah, look, there's always... There's always uh organizations that are that are doing it really well and there's and then there's organizations that are um you know probably you know i refer to it as the as the tail wagging the dog um and and what i mean by that is i think some people get get um caught up in that we have to be measuring something oh this this load monitoring is important so we have to measure something so what are we going to measure um and and then they'll It'll be a low intensity sport, but they'll they'll grab oh heart rate monitors. Okay, we'll grab heart rate for every session, um, and and you think well like okay, do you, is heart rate going to be the key variable that's going to be informative for your sport? And and it's it's kind of like well we need some data to make decisions, um, so we've just got to grab some data, but the problem is they haven't really thought about what what data they need, so. Um, you know the advice I'd give anyone who's who's starting out and looking at, at at all of these different wearables that are out there is is actually look at your sport first. Trust your eyes. You you know the sport in general. People know if it's a high or a low intensity sport. Um, have a have a think about have a think about the variables that are important from a performance point of view. And chances are they're going to be the same the same variables that are important from an injury point of view. Um, and that that's going to be probably give you the most information in terms of what you should measure, the variables you should track. Um, in terms of you know, is there a is there a gold standard technology that I would use? Um, no, no, there isn't um, because it's it's going to vary from from sport to sport and activity to activity. Um, so a GPS unit, which is really great for measuring uh, distance run and, and speeds that you run at, may not be completely suitable for um, someone who's uh, in, a, in an acrobatic type activity or a dancing activity or an indoor activity. Um, 
and and equally it, it may not be so relevant to someone who who just has to throw a ball um, on a regular basis um, who doesn't have to run a lot but maybe just maybe they just have to stand on a mound and throw a ball at a batter um, maybe that's their major the major variable of interest so you know again the the trick is look at your sport trust your eyes if if it looks important from a performance viewpoint then chances are it probably is and, and probably that's the kind of variable that you want to try and measure if you can yeah and what i think you probably alluded to it then but is that the common mistakes that people make they take irrelevant data or data for the sake of data um i mean i guess that's that's one of the traps traps for young players i guess is um is just taking the time to learn the sport um you, you know obviously as a and this is probably something that that you learn over time as a as a as someone in a scientific discipline in, in a you know if you think science you think measurement so when you think sports science you think well i've got to get out there and i've got to test and i've got to measure stuff um and you know, you know i think when you're when you're new to the game and when you're when you're starting out, you you want to you want to be making a difference. You want to be seen to be to be doing stuff. You want to be using your skills. Um, but a big a big part of of being able to use those skills effectively is just taking the time to work out what's important to measure. So, um, you know, I often tell stories of how some of the best science I've ever done is when I've never when I've measured nothing at all, and and all it involves is a is standing next to a coach at training and just just listening to the, the words he's using, listening to the things that are important to him, um, or you know after training ha- having a coffee with with a coach or the training staff after after practice and and just you know working out what our key problems are, you know what what are the issues for this particular athlete or this particular team. Now that's that's going to be far more informative in the long run. It may take you a little bit longer to get to where you want to go, but in the long run, um, it's going to be far more effective than if you if you if you just try and jump in there, measure something, and and not actually take the time to to learn the sport and and learn what the real issues are in the sport. We'll dig into some specifics, um, but for people hearing um, about your work and the acute chronic workload ratio work, um, to give it some context, could you describe the kind of basic concepts of it yeah well you know we've all we've all we're all interested in in training load because good good training load effective training load or well well designed programs under underpin um physiological adaptation so if you have a it's kind of like a a big rock that i look at as if you if you get your training load right then it's one of those big rocks that that can actually help you improve. Um, now, for a long time, training load was it was kind of a confusing issue because we knew we had to train to get fit, but but there was also this this view that every time someone got injured, or everyone performed poorly, or or experienced some sort of um, looked fatigued, looked tired, well, his training loads are too high, his loads are too high. Um, so it was. It was like training load was this really good guy that could get you fit and get you strong and performing well, but it was also this this evil this evil guy as well that that caused all these negative things. 
And, and of course, it's probably both right. If, if you train appropriately um, and you build load systematically, then you can, you can develop um, robust athletes at, who are able to perform under high levels of pressure and high levels of stress. Equally, if you, if you don't train appropriately, if you throw too much load at an athlete um, before they're ready to handle that load, uh, then it, it increases your risk of underperformance, it increases your risk of injury. Um, so the whole the, the whole concept of the acute chronic workload ratio, which is also referred to as training stress balance um, from, from Andy Colgan's work, is um, we, we take the load that someone has done over a, a short period of time um, and we refer to that as acute load. And acute load is analogous to fatigue. It comes and goes pretty quickly. Um, whereas chronic load is the load that you've performed over a longer period of time. And it, it takes a longer time to develop fitness. Um, so we, we tend to look at chronic load as, as analogous to fitness and chronic load being a longer training load score. Then we just take the um, the ratio between the two. You put acute load over a chronic load and it gives you a ratio of of what you've done in the in the most recent week compared to what you've been prepared for over a longer period of time. Um, so the idea is um, you can look at your athlete at any point in time and you can say whether the the loading that they've done in this in this recent period of time, whether it's likely to be associated with um, physical development or excessive fatigue. And you mentioned earlier how you approach selecting the right metrics earlier how do you determine the best time frame for what constitutes as acute or chronic for say different sports well we don't really know um what the the optimum window is um in, a, in an acute sense it could be as as short as one session or, or one one day it could be as long as say say a week um, typically, chronic load tends to be a little bit longer. You know, we'd say anywhere between three and six weeks, because you know, to get to get adaptation in in uh, most physical qualities, not all physical qualities, but most physical qualities, it, it takes a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, generally three weeks is kind of what we would look at as a minimum chronic load. But um, you know, there's a couple of things there. There's there's some studies that have compared the original one week and four weeks versus a number of different acute windows from from two days up to nine days and a number of different chronic windows from from three weeks up to eight weeks and and all of these different combinations of acute and chronic windows offered no better relationship with injury than the original uh, one week and four week so um, you know it may be that you know, we're trying to find these these optimum windows, and um, you know, at least statistically from a research point of view, when we look at large large samples, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference. But in saying that, I think most of us would all, would also agree that um, different sports are going to have different um, different challenges. So uh, a one a one game a week sport is is likely to have a different a different kind of challenge than than a sport that you know, plays five games in a week or, or, or six games in seven days. So um, it may be that you change your, your window based on some sort of um, uh, logical cycle. So if you're looking at a, 
a starting pitcher who pitches every five days, then maybe your acute window is a is a five day cycle. Um, you know, it, it, you might just have to play around a bit with it for your sport. The the final thing there is, um, you know, we have these we have these windows that we pick, um, and you know we've picked one week and four weeks, but all of us know that athletes adapt at different rates. You know that so um, a a one a one week acute window or a, a four week chronic window might be perfect for me, but it, it may not be the right cycle for you. And um, um, it's it's it, when when it comes to to finding out what that that right cycle is for individual athletes, then it's it's going to be a little bit of trial and error. Um, and unless unless you're measuring a lot of different uh, variables to measure adaptation, uh, then I, I think that's probably the the reality of it that that there, there becomes a bit of art in this in this whole load monitoring process as well. We have science, but we also have a, a fair bit of art involved in it as well. And I'm aware there's internal loads and external loads that you can look at. How do you kind of translate them or communicate between them? Because they can be quite different metrics. Yeah, well they. I mean, they are. Like if we if we just use say a let's let's use a, a runner. As a as a simple example, um, you might have a plan to to run four miles today, and you achieve that four miles. So your planned load, your planned external load, and your actual external load marry up really closely. But then you might have a situation where you you plan to run four miles, but you actually ran eight miles. So so what do you do there? Do you interpret that as as being a bad thing because you've you've run more than what you expected. So does that mean you have to shut them down on the next few days to, to even it out through the week? Or does it mean it's a good thing because you've actually achieved more work than what you had planned? Um, now, the reality is you can't you can't interpret that one data point on its own. You, you actually need a second a second data point, and, and that's where internal load comes in. So let's, let's say we have either heart rate or the rating of perceived exertion. What you can do is you can combine those external and internal load variables. So now if we run more than our plan, so we ran eight miles rather than four miles, the first thing we need to, to look at is, well, what happens to the internal load? Was the heart rate or RPA, RPE really high? If it's really high, then that, that indicates that maybe um, the athlete has done more work than what we'd planned and they're also not coping with that work. So we might have to reduce their load in a subsequent session. But equally, if if they've done more work and their their RPE or heart rate is is lower than what we'd had, we, we'd expected, that's actually a good thing. That indicates adaptation um, because they're doing more work, but it's they're getting more work out with less stress. Um, so that's exactly what you want from your athlete. So um, the idea there is. Firstly, don't don't use one piece of information alone to make your decisions. Try and try and use a few a few more pieces of information before you before you make a a training decision. Um, but it's a it's, it's a really simple way of combining external and internal load to to look at either increases or decreases in load or adaptation or maladaptation. That's really helpful. Um, a question. I was thinking of earlier actually was is there a difference in the approach we should take between managing say upper body limb loads and lower body limb loads if we were looking at something like the gym 
Um, you know, sometimes lower limb exercises can involve um, more weight on the bar, as an example. How do we kind of navigate through that? Yeah, well, potentially. Um, and these, this is one of the things that it's kind of well, where do where do we take some of this research? Well, it could go in a lot of different different directions. Um, you know, what we have at the moment is is probably um, let's say twenty to twenty five. Um, studies that have consistently shown that spikes in load increase injury risk. And the majority of these um, studies have come from, from team sport athletes, from a, from a wide range of research groups, uh, a wide range of sports. But then then the, the question then is, well, you know, as you say, can, can the upper, bo- upper body handle less load than, than the lower body? Um, what are what are some of the the moderating factors that um, allow some athletes to handle spikes in load where others can't? Um, we know that we know that at least from a high intensity or a high speed running viewpoint that if you're stronger, if you're aerobically fitter, you and if you have higher chronic loads, you you tend to be protected against spikes in load. You tend to have a lower risk when you spike loads. Um, so the the question I would have is. Can, do we have a similar sort of relationship with upper body loads? So if we have a baseball pitcher who is who is stronger, um, whatever your strength metrics are, maybe if they have greater muscular endurance, does that actually set them up to handle um, greater pitching loads or greater spikes in pitching load when they need to when they need to get on the mound? Um, you know, there's a few there's a lot of things that we we just don't have the answers for. I could speculate. Um, and I, I would I would speculate that if you have higher chronic loads and that if you're stronger and and base and potentially have greater muscular endurance, then potentially you would handle um, spikes in spikes in pitching load better than if you didn't have those moderating factors. But again, I, I'm speculating because the as far as I'm aware, the research hasn't been done. If the goal is to get high chronic loads achieved smoothly how do we best manage the black holes where players may disappear for periods of time so like international training camps or players own off-season training or perhaps in student athletes holidays so situations where we don't fully know what the workloads have been um, but we need to re-establish them into training and work out what their current floor is for loading yeah, that's that's always that's always the challenge we've got is uh, what happens there because we can't whether it be CBA or whether it be um, uh, the uh, the college rules that prevent prevent athletes being monitored. It is what it is. I, I think if what we've got to consider there is. Okay, is is monitoring important? Well, most of us would say yes. So um, then we we have to find a way to monitor our athletes or put some ownership back on them to say, you know, you can monitor this information. But we also and we can do that through through session RPEs. We can get an indication of how much work they've done, and we can also break down the type of work they've done. That's easy enough. Um, but I but I think the, the the second and more important point here is that. Um, the monitoring alone will not will not change risk. Monitoring alone will not decrease your injury potential. Um, what you actually have to do is train, and that's that's where I think the biggest issue comes in the black holes is 
that we give our athletes programs to do and some of them are really well-designed programs, but then the athletes don't do them for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, there's, there's legitimate reasons why they don't do them, but if, if we need our athletes to return with a certain floor for the start of pre-season or following that, that mid, mid-season break and they haven't trained at all so that floor looks more like the basement – that's when we run into problems because we have to ramp up their loads very quickly and when we ramp up loads quickly, that's that's when we increase the risk both of, of injury but also um, increase the risk of poor performance. When we're talking about workloads, what are some ways or examples of the more innovative or impactful ways you've seen around managing them? Yeah, look, the, the, best, the best programs, um, you know, I won't. I won't mention the team, but um, if he's listening, he'll know who he is anyway. Uh, there's there's a there's a person uh, in the states who has worked with a hockey team that we've worked with for a long time, and and um, you know one of the one of the big things, or one of the things that he does really well is that he um, he, he understands sport. So he hasn't. He, he's not trying to make it a lab. He's he's trying to help um, these athletes perform at as high a level as possible, as often as possible when they need to get on the ice, um, and and rather than rather than um, just coming in and saying, well, this is the way we we did things in in England with our one day a week sport, um, he's actually learned the culture. Of, of the sport, he, he, he embraces the culture of the sport, embraces the people, and and accepts that you know there's a there's a huge history in the sport, um, but then then tries to work with that history to um, and work with the players and their beliefs to to try and build some robustness, and but also acknowledges the fact that there's there's certain limits on how much how much time they can be in the facility. Um, there's there's certain limits around how much time he can devote to strength and conditioning and and also how much time the players actually need to be on the ice for the coaches practicing Um, and he he manages to make it work where they can they can get some strength and conditioning in but it's it's almost like a a pre-activation for their their on ice work and it's a continual micro dose of of strength training so it's not just a a situation of of managing players game to game and and trying to manage recovery. What what they're actually trying to do is um, prevent the detraining process from happening. They're they're maintaining chronic loads, maintaining strength. By doing that, it improves the athlete's ability to recover um, because we know stronger athletes recover quicker. Um, we know that they they get um, uh, stronger athletes have. Um, Less less muscle damage or, or lower CKs post game, and we also know that the stronger athletes perform better and, and have a lower risk at a given training load. So there's a lot of benefits from having that that microdose of of strength training on a regular basis. But but trying to find ways to work it into a very a very tight schedule is is the challenge that he, that he's made that he's made work. And I think I think that um, it, the, the strength of that is its simplicity. It, there's not a there's not a lot of toys that are being used. It's it if you were 
a, a strength and conditioning coach from 40 years ago, you would look at Gap and you would say, geez, that's kind of like an old school approach, but um, old school approach, it's it works. Um, and, and what I do see with a lot of teams that that seem to seems to struggle with injuries or they they they're chasing chasing this um, this ideal variable to measure you know we've got to measure something they, they kind of can't see the forest for the trees because they're, they're chasing that and the answers right in front of them they're, they're actually not training anymore they're just trying to monitor everything but they're not training so they're not actually monitoring anything anyway so it's it's uh, again it's a case of the the tail wagging the dog and um, without meaning to put you on the spot, if you were in charge of a, let's say, a Premier League uh, performance department in um, football or soccer, how would your team use data to influence programming or injury risk minimization? Well, I, I probably wouldn't get bogged down with with too much data. Actually, um, like I, I would use it, um, but. You know, I actually feel like um, I feel like getting to know the players and and finding out what makes them tick is is probably going to be um, more impactful than any data than we we can measure. Um, and that's not to say the data is not important, but I just I, I feel like the, the missing part of the puzzle is is the relationship part. That you, you can't just look at a number and say, oh, computer says no you're not training today or computer says yes you need to do 100 accelerations because you haven't had enough accelerations so we're just going to run you up and down over a over a two or three meter distance back and forth so we can get your accelerations up um you know so all of that data uh, is just numbers without context unless you actually take the time to to learn your players listen to your players listen to your coaches find out what kind of game style you want to want to play um and then, and then use that to uh, to inform your training decisions from there. Um, but for me, it, it starts with with having a relationship with with my players, so that I can I can actually get them to do some work because they they believe that I'm going to be looking after their best interests. They know that if we're doing a bit of extra work, it's it's not a punishment. It's actually because it's going to get them better. And if if they need to have a rest, it's because we've taken taken time to to look at them, have a chat with them. And we've used some data to help um, influence our decisions um, to, to actually come up with the best decision for them as as individuals. So it's interesting. It sounds like the kind of overriding theme is that it's the people and their personal approach or attributes that separate great teams from you know average or standard teams. Look, I mean that's that's just that's my opinion. You know, you if you uh, if you interviewed another twenty signers, they're probably tell you 20 different things i suppose um you know and i guess it if you if you interviewed me 20 years ago i would i would probably say that i you know i would definitely tell you that i measured a lot more then than i do now um but i you know i had to go through a um working with a team that didn't have a lot of resources to to get to that point and realize that um uh it was probably some of the best sports science i, I was able to do and, but I had the least amount of resources to do it. And, and the reason it worked well was because the players, I trusted the players and, and they trusted me and, 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 and they knew that I had their best interests at heart and that I wouldn't ask them to do anything that I couldn't do myself um, and, and that they were going to be pushed pretty hard, but they're also going to get recovery on the back of it. Um, 
and and when they when they achieved things, they they knew I was looking for you know I was ex- as excited for them about um, them achieving things as they were. So um, you know p- part of part of that is uh, yeah it's it's a hard it's a hard one to quantify, but it, um, with all the the technology that's out there. And, and the technology is great. It's it's actually you know if we think of where we were in two thousand with our heads in in cameras instead of using GPS to track track player movements, we've come a long way. Um, but if we can't if we can't develop relationships with our athletes, if we can't communicate simply with our coaches, and we lose our coaches because um, because they're so time poor, they don't have the time to listen to all the jargon around. Around the analysis we've done, they just just tell me what I need to know. Um, if we can't communicate that in a simple way, then we're not going to be effective. And which people in the industry have the kind of greatest impact on you now, and where you see this topic going? Um, look, I think the probably the ones that have um, when you can sit down with them over dinner and they've got some balance in their life and they don't have to actually talk about um, <laughs> training load or sport or performance. They can actually have a conversation around a whole heap of other areas that have nothing to do with work. Um, the ones the ones that that I think, um, you know, have, have an emotional emotional intelligence to, um, to realise that it's, that no matter how how good they are in their their particular role, it's it's not about them. Um, the, you know that without the athletes, then then all of these roles, none of them exist. There, there is no sports scientist. There is no strength and conditioning coach. There is no need for for physical therapists uh, because it's it's the athletes that matter. So so when when we have different people who come into a room and have to have to come together to formulate a plan for a particular athlete, then then the ones who, who can actually put their egos aside and and realise that none of it is about them, um, they're the ones that that I look at and I go, yeah, this is the, these are the people that I want to work with. These are the people who are here for the right reasons. They're doing it for the right reasons. Um, unfortunately, um, in our in our in our world of, of high performance sport where there is a lot of egos, um, I think I think a lot of people lose sight of that, and and that's the disappointing thing for me because uh, we've got some some really intelligent people um, that are working with athletes, but if they don't have the social intelligence, again, that their their impact's going to be limited. And I'm aware that you teach courses all around the world. Have you got anything in the pipeline at the moment that listeners should be aware of or look out for? Yeah, look, yeah, there's um, there's a, there's a course pretty much popping up everywhere. So January, February next year, we'll be in New York and um, U- Utah, actually. So uh, these are like two day courses. They're um, you know the idea is to take take the evidence on on training load, and and what I what I try and do is focus on peer reviewed evidence. And the, the trick with peer reviewed evidence is. A lot of those studies are hard to read, so it's about taking the peer-reviewed evidence and and presenting in a in a practical way and a user-friendly way. So and with a lot of um, 
a lot of focus groups and, and problem solving activities so that when you when you walk out of that course on on the Sunday afternoon and you go back to work on Monday morning you've got some skills that you can apply straight away with your athletes that you're working with in your teams or your clinics and is that suitable for you know obviously sports scientists but strength conditioning coaches physiotherapists is it kind of relevant to anybody in the industry well it's a, it's a really interesting one yeah obviously sports scientists strength and conditioning coaches come along um physical therapists come along all the time it's um and we have chiropractors come along sports chiropractors athletic trainers uh in in some of the recent ones that we've done, we've had coaches in the room and and now and even athletes. We've had athletes contributing to panel discussions. So now we've we've got a, a situation where all the key players, um, e- even the GMs are coming along. We've got all the key players in an organisation coming along and and listening to the language of load, understanding that 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 load is a good thing. Um, that we don't have to be fearful of load. We need to be respectful of it. But we don't need to be fearful of it, and um, and and some of the coaches that are spending two days in these workshops, they they're driving the focus groups, um, so they're not sitting back on their hands, going, oh, geez, counting the seconds until this is over. They're, you know, we're talking about, um, okay, we want to, I want you to build a, a rehab program from the ground up, and we've got we've got a coach in there driving an early stage rehab program. And to me, this that's the real success of it, uh, where we've got a coach who's prepared to to put himself out there and say, look, I don't know everything, but this is how I'm going to attack this. Give me some feedback. Um, here's some principles that I'm using that I've learned from the course. Give me some feedback. How can I improve it? And and um, when we get when we get people from from different professions understanding the challenges of of those different professions. Um, and but also understanding the value of good loading, that's when we, we get to a position where we're going to get even better performances than what we're getting now. Um, we're going to have we're going to have a team that that respectfully debate. So we you know they're going to disagree at times, but they're they're going to be respectful about it. Um, and we're going to give our athletes a chance to to thrive on a really big stage. That to me is is the exciting part, and that's what. If you're if you're involved in sport, that's what we're all driving towards. We all want great performances, um, so that's that's the exciting part for me when we get all those people um, in the one room talking with each other. Sounds enormously constructive and positive. Um, where can people? Where, where's the best place for people to follow you online? Uh, look, I, we've we've got a website, gabbertperformance.com. Um, and uh, you know, so we, we'll put all our all our workshops. We'll put some blogs and some some peer reviewed articles when we can. We put them up online. Of course, any anyone who wants access to to any of the research that we've done, all they have to do is is drop me an email, and um, I'll I'll send you any paper you want. I'll even send you papers you don't want. Um, so you can you can have you can have as many papers as you like to read. Um, and, and of course, you know we've got we're on uh, social media as well, so we'll post all that, all our, you know, stuff that we we find interesting. We'll put up there, um, so you can always get a hold of, you know, our recent thoughts on on training load and and performance related matters up there as well on on Twitter and Instagram and and LinkedIn and Facebook and all all the social medias. Well, Tim, I think that's um, I think that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much for your insights. That was um, that was really refreshing, actually, to hear about the science. But then, you know, the kind of 
your wider approach to how you do things. No, it's, it's my my pleasure. Look, if we can, if we, you know, I really I really appreciate the fact that uh, you reached out, Andy, and um, you know, I, I know a lot of people listen to listen to podcasts and um, you know on their way to work or or in the gym or wherever they listen to it. So you know, I hope I hope some people get some uh, you know some things out of this one, and um, you know, it's it's really it's really good to to keep sharing this information and. Just keep driving the, the profession forward if we can. So well done on it. Keep up the good work. No, thank you. Thanks for coming on. I'd like to thank Tim for coming on the show today. I think you'll agree Tim's wealth of knowledge and experience is very obvious. Personally, I really enjoyed hearing him speak from the depth of that experience about exactly when and why you should collect athlete data, going back to the fundamental reasoning behind it and some common sports science application. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or any other major podcast player and check us out on Instagram at informperformance. If there's anything we've referenced that you'd like to read more about, then you can go on the website show notes at informperformance.com.